0: It would certainly be a fair statement to make that we're so delighted, even as Cale mentioned earlier, to have each and every person here tonight, our membership, our visitors alike. It's certainly always a privilege we've been given by God to assemble in His name, and we certainly look forward to any opportunity we certainly have in order to do that very thing. As was already mentioned also tonight, one of our question and answer sessions And as always, may I say, the questions are not mine, but yours. It is your opportunity to select in one way or another the topics for the lesson tonight. And as always, you can uh, put questions in that little box out there in the foyer if you like. And when the time comes, we do these little sessions every now and then, and we'll give attention to some of those questions that may be resting upon your mind and your heart. Tonight we have roughly four questions, and we'll get to them here in just a moment. And as always, many thanks to those who have offered questions for consideration. And let me again say that if I don't answer the question that you intended to ask, if I misinterpreted it in some way, just kindly write, write another one, put it in the box, and I'll try to do a better job on, on the next occasion. May I say as we begin, though, that our whole reason for having any such sessions like this is because we firmly believe the Bible has answers in it. It is not merely a book of trivia. It's not merely a book that has subjective guidelines. It's a book that genuinely has information and answers directly to answer the needs of the matters of your life and mine. And it's our hope to merely open the Word of God and as Paul would say in Romans 4 verse 3, what saith the Scripture that in fact is our interest tonight? As we come to that, I would like to do justice as I try to do to these questions, and so I will read them. And as we come to our first question, it reads like this In Matthew and Mark, it is recorded that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with the bread first, and then the fruit of the vine. In Luke 22, verses 14 to 20, it seems that the fruit of the vine was taken first. Is this a contradiction? Should we be partaking of the fruit of the vine first when we partake of the Lord's Supper? Please explain. Would you please be turning to Matthew 26? We will use that as our first consideration as part of the answer. While you're turning to that location, let me again say, at least in a basic way, the question to ask was this. As you read Matthew and Mark, it seems clear that when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, He took the unleavened bread first, and after that, the fruit of the vine. And yet, as you read in Luke 22, in Luke's accounting of that event, it would appear that it may well have been the case that the fruit of the vine was taken first, and the bread after it. And so the person has asked a great question. Is there a contradiction there? Should we be partaking the fruit of the vine first? Let's first of all look at Matthew's accounting. You may notice on the slide there are three passages that give us details about the institution of the Lord's Supper. One is Matthew 26, verses 17 to 29. One of them is Mark 14, verses 12 to 25. And the third one is Luke 22, verses 7 to 20. I'll not read nearly all of each of them, but rather I think it fair to read short sections of each one. Let's start in Matthew Beginning in verse 26 of Matthew chapter 26, the text reads like this, "...and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins." But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew's version. Again, it seems so abundantly clear, doesn't it? On the events herein described, we notice in verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. That's unleavened bread. He broke it, He gave it to the disciples, And notice he said something interesting to them. He said, this is my body. As he was holding, no doubt, a piece of the bread, he identified it in connection to his body. Now you and I understand literally it wasn't a piece of his flesh, but it represented it. And then in the next verse it says he took the cup. So the unleavened bread was first, the fruit of the vine second. Turn over to Mark's account. In this instance, in Mark 14, I'll begin reading in verse 22 of that chapter. Mark 14, verse 22. It says, And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily, I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There is much similarity between Mark's accounting and that of Matthew. If I may again draw your attention to just a quick passing thought or two, notice verse number 22, As they were eating, Jesus took bread Bread was taken first, as the inspired writer has pointed this out. And following that, again, the cup in verse 23. As I mentioned, it would seem for Matthew and Mark, the ordering is very clearly presented. Now come to Luke. In Luke chapter 22, again, not reading all of the various sections of that passage, could I ask you again to draw attention to the following... Beginning in verse number fifteen, Luke twenty-two fifteen, it says, "And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God." And he took the cup. Notice it with me. He took the cup and gave thanks and said, "Take, eat, or take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you." I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, this due to remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament, my blood, which is shed for you. There has been a discussion throughout the decades about the passages you and I have just read. In fact, there are congregations which, in fact, in their observance of the Lord's Supper, will take the fruit of the vine first, based on their reading of Luke's accounting of what you and I just noted. And thus, it is a very good question the person has asked. What is to be made of the consideration of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's version of this? I would call the following to your teaching. We must, it would seem to me, Keep in mind the setting of the events of that night on which our Savior instituted this which you and I call the Lord's Supper. And for that reason, I have drawn to your attention some of these facts. In Exodus chapter 12, we remember the children of Israel had already appreciated the coming of ten, uh, rather nine of those great plagues that were brought upon the nation of Egypt. But yet the tenth one was shortly to come, and it was to be a plague in which the firstborn's going to die. Everyone in every house in which there's not blood on the doorpost and on the lentils. And therefore, the following commandment was given. On the tenth day of the month, you take a lamb. You keep it up until the fourteenth day. You slay it even, and you take and you, of that blood of that lamb, and you put it upon the doorpost and you stay in the house that night. Now may I say, as Moses said to them, as you stay in the house, you've got to eat it now. You can't waste that, but you eat it. A family or two can come together if you like. But you eat it in haste, because that night when there's a great death coming over, that's going to be the means by which the children of Israel is going to be released. And sure enough, they ate it in haste. That's why the bread was unleavened. There wasn't time for the dough to rise. And you'll notice they proceeded to take it that same way throughout all the centuries that followed. But as they ate it in haste that night, it was that memorial, it was that observance that Jesus was observing with His disciples, observing the Passover. As they did that, you may recall that there was at least a matter or two different. On the night they first observed it, back in the book of Exodus, they had to eat it in haste. You had to be ready to leave. And they left that night. Therefore, they had to have their staff in their hand, their shoes on their feet. You had to be ready to go when you eat this meal. Well, over the course of time, as the Jews celebrated that Passover, those features were appreciated not as critical elements in it. And therefore... People would come together, they would enjoy all that was represented in this in regard to God's protection of them, in regard to God's provision to them. And therefore, it came to be observed in ways that looked like this. There was a rather specific ordering that went with the way the Jewish rabbis taught and expected the Jews to celebrate the Passover. It began like this. First of all, there was a cup that was observed. And remember, the father, the head of the family, was the one who overruled in the entirety of this observance, as we're about to see. And hence, a cup would be taken, as emblematic as the, of the beginning of this celebration. But following that, there was a presentation of bitter herbs. Again, because bitter herbs had been described in Exodus 12 as a part of the original Passover celebration and meal. But thirdly, there was the presentation of unleavened bread and the lamb. Now notice, no eating of it yet, just the presentation of it as a part of that which is about to take place. Number four, the father, the one who is basically overruling in this, directing it if you please, that gentleman was to take the bitter herbs, dip them into the juices that were along with the lamb, offered a prayer, and then he was allowed to eat. He would take the initial eating, if you please, of it. After that, the others were able to follow. But in addition to this, number six, now a second cup was made available. A cup involving this, this wine that was a part of this entire celebration. Number seven, at this point, the son of that father would ask a question. Basically, it went like this. What is the meaning of this? Because every year it was done, and so it would be natural that a son would perhaps be inquisitive, but it was a formal thing that was to be asked. The father then explained, gave him the meaning of what the Passover was, how it was originated, and why it was observed every year. Number eight, there was a singing of Psalm 113 and Psalm 114, two of the chapters of the Old Testament. Now, those are often called two of the Hallel Psalms. As they sang them, they speak about God's marvelous provision and protection, but it brings us to number nine. The Father washed His hands at that point. You'll notice He took two cakes of unleavened bread. He dips one of them in the meat, and He proceeds to eat And then all the others are allowed to, again, join in this. Number 11, at that point, the Father eats for the last time during the course of the celebration. A third cup is then presented. Number 13, now the singing of three more. Psalms 115, 16, 17, and 18. Again, rather short, but as those four are sung, it brings to an element of greatness in light of... Honoring the God who made all of this possible. At that point, number four, number 14, a fourth cup is presented. And sometimes, depending on which source you consider, even a fifth one. But at that point, there's in a consideration of Psalm chapters 120 to 137, a consideration, I say, it could well have been that the Father would read all of them. It could well have been a reference to some of the special observances that took place in them. But at that point, that drew to a close the fullness of that celebration. It is with that in mind we're ready to answer the question. Look at the next statement. I believe you and I can see something. When did, you, when did Jesus identify Judas as the betrayer? You may recall that there was a very clear statement in John 13 that the Lord dipped sop and handed it to Judas. You notice number 10 is when that would have happened. Steps 9 and 10, as that observance took place, the Lord, as the director of this, would have been a perfect time to identify His betrayer, namely Judas. But at this point, the answer seems evident in the following light. Look again at the statements that were made. Could I turn, ask you to turn again to Matthew 26? It says in verse 26, a very interesting set of words begin that verse. It says, and as they were eating. Well, now we understand all of this. So in other words, as the events of this celebration took place, there came a time when Jesus then took bread and then took the cup and made something special and unique. Not like what we've already read about. Now, there was unleavened bread, and there was lamb, and there was, again, fruit of the vine taking place all during the celebration. But something very special is herein noted. Could I call to your attention another statement? This one. Again, in Mark's account, verse 22, Mark 14, as they did eat, so there's a reference to the fact in the ongoing procession of their eating of this Passover, something very special and unique now takes place. It is now that I would ask you to note Luke. Luke highlights it in a very interesting way. In verse number 20, for example, of Luke chapter 22, could I ask you to notice, so which cup is it that Jesus used to institute the Lord's Supper? And it's very clear what the text says. Let me invite you to notice, and I'll even emphasize it as I read it. It says, likewise also the cup after supper. You may even want to emphasize, underline that phrase, What the Lord did was not a part, as He instituted the Lord's Supper, of any of these steps we've just noted. There were many cups involved. There was a particular progression in which the leader would take a cup, drink of it, and the others were allowed to follow. But what the Lord did was after all of this. Again, verse number 20, Likewise also the cup after supper, so take note, the word also indicates... After all of these official Passover proceedings were finished, the Lord took some unleavened bread. But it was after supper. And then He took the cup after supper. And it was then that He instituted the Lord's Supper. But please take note in verse 19 the bread was first, even in Luke's account. Back up in verses 16 and 17, that cup that Luke referred to there, that was a cup that was a part of the actual Passover celebration. It was not a part of the actual institution of the Lord's Supper. There's actually a later New Testament passage that refers us back to this and even adds some additional clarification. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we have the following statement. The King James translation reads verse 25 in the following way. It says, After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Interestingly though, in Greek, that reads like this. After the same manner also he took the cup, after supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. May I again ask you to note, it says after supper in the original language. So it was not a part of the Passover celebration, but rather it was after it. And thus I think we've answered our question. Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper is in harmony in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the bread was first in all three cases. His, Luke's mention of the cup... Notice was prior to the Lord's establishment of the, of, the, of the Lord's Supper. It was a reference to one of the last cups that was taken as a part of that actual Passover celebration. Our next question. This one reads as follows. A very brief question. Please explain the phrase, Balm in Gilead. There may be occasions you and I have heard about the bomb in Gilead. Well, this question not only asks us about that, but we'll take just a moment and see if we can develop a few of the features related to it. If you'd like to be turning to Jeremiah chapter 8, you will encounter the one and only time in the entirety of the Bible when the phrase, "balm in Gilead, occurs. We will read, in fact, from that very, very text in Jeremiah chapter 8, near the close of that chapter. As you perhaps have already noted on the slide, there are a few facts and interesting details about this. But verse number 22 of Jeremiah 8 reads like this. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? I frankly confess, just to pick that verse up and read it, it's difficult to appreciate the context, and it's difficult to appreciate a powerful set of lessons that really means a great deal to us when we appreciate a little bit that's behind it. So let me take just a moment and fill in a few of those remarkable details. The people of Judah had chosen to walk differently than God wished them to to, to to in fact do. Although God had sent them as prophets, although He had sent them, these people to urge them and warn them and try to urge them to repent, they had chosen not to do it. In fact, they were walking headlong and headstrong right into Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah urged them to repent. He urged them to do differently. In many ways, that's the backdrop of the first several chapters of the book of Jeremiah. In fact, in chapter 6, verse 16, these famous words are found, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. God, through the prophet, said, Please... Ask for the old paths. Do what you know the old paths were and are, and you will have rest for your souls. But did you note their quick retort? We will not walk therein. They weren't interested in doing the things of God. Therefore, look over the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 28. God Himself said, This is a nation that obeyeth not God. Now again, He was telling them, You're headed to captivity because of your sin. It is in that context that we arrive at chapter 8. Verse number 20, a remarkable little verse. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. God tried and tried and tried, urging them to repent, urging them to change, but they wouldn't. And now He says, The harvest is past. The time's run out. You could have repented and everything would have been fine, but you have sealed your fate. It is in that context, verse 22 says, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Balm. What does the word balm mean? I know sometimes we refer to summertime weather. It may be described as balmy but when you see that word balm in the Bible, you think of ointment. Think about salve. Is there no salve in Gilead? The facts of the matter are these. The finest salve in that Old Testament era was from a region known as Gilead. And therefore, what God is saying is, is there no balm in balm Town? The finest balm in the ancient world was available. The words of God they had. And they chose chose to ignore it. They chose to neglect it. They chose to rebel against it. They chose to turn a blind eye to it. There was a physician available. It was the God of heaven. And they had no interest in it. And so when you and I note the phrase, the balm in Gilead, it's a reminder. There is a great physician. For the people of Israel, it was the God of heaven. For us today, we have a great physician as well, Jesus the Christ. May you and I not be as foolish as they were to ignore our physician, to have no interest in what he says, because there is balm in Gilead. I would ask you to notice at the bottom of the slide, there's a song in our songbook that is patterned after this very idea. Look with me at the words of Psalm number 881. Song 881, this may be another one we add to our list and try to sing it, learn it at some point in one of our singing nights. The title of the song is, There Is a Balm in Gilead. And the words read like this, There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my works in vain but then the holy spirit revives my soul again there is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole there is a balm in Gilead to make the sin to heal the sin sick soul if you can't sing like angels if you can't preach like paul then tell the love of jesus and say he died for all there is a balm in Gilead To make the wounded whole, there is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Isn't that a nice song? Again, we may see if we can sing that at some point in, in the near future. But question two about the balm in Gilead, remember, that's just a salve, an ointment. And they had access to it. Spiritually, it was the Word of God, but they chose to ignore it. How tragic. How terribly, terribly tragic. Question number three. This question reads as follows. The Israelites were forbidden to use leaven during the Passover and the week following. What was it about leaven that led to God's prohibition of it? Another very good question. And perhaps you and I have often read in the context of the Old Testament about leaven and how that God was very serious about the removal of it. As you and I begin that particular slide, the person who asked the question was absolutely right. On the day of the Passover, God had specifically said, there must be no leaven at all. Not only in the bread that you have that day, it can't be in your house. You can have none of it at all. Well, you and I clearly would understand that would have meant that those Jews, several days ahead of time, would have needed to begin to clean the house of leaven, every single bit of it everywhere would have had to, be, to have had to have been removed. It would have been a serious and arduous task. And so the person asked a great question, what was it about leaven that led to God's assertion that you have no dealings with it, at least in regard to those children of Israel? In fact, in Exodus 12, verse number 19 we have one of the first statements about this prohibition, and it reads in such strength that I thought we might well want to take note of it. Exodus 12, verse number 19. The inspired writer recorded, "...seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses." May I ask you to note, not just in the bread, it can't even be in the house." For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. Later on in chapter 13, verse number 7, same book. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no leavened bread be seen with thee, neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. And that word quarters literally means borders. Seemingly suggestive of the fact that, again, leaven had to be very carefully and scrupulously removed from the entirety of their places of dwelling. Furthermore, in Deuteronomy 16, verses 3 and 4, yet another very strong statement about the prohibition against leaven. Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 3. Thou shalt eat no leavened bread with thee, seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread therewith, even the bread of affliction. For thou camest out of the land of Egypt in haste, that thou mayest remember the day when thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of thy life. And there shall be no leavened bread seen with thee in all thy coast seven days. Neither shall there anything of the flesh which thou sacrificest the first day at even remain all night until the morning. The Word of God, again, was exceedingly clear to those Jews. No leaven. And so our person has asked a good question, what is it about leaven that led to God in such strength and such directness to prohibit it? Look with me on this slide. It would seem from later passages in the Bible that there's some very strong connections to the concept of leaven. To identify those connections, let's begin in Matthew 16, verses 6 through 12. The reference to leaven here is an interesting one to be sure. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 6, "...then Jesus said unto them, "'Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees.'" And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Which, when Jesus perceived, He said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves, because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not understand, neither remember the loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets ye took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many baskets ye took up? How is it that ye do not understand That I spake it not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then understood they how that He bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's exceedingly interesting, don't you think? that when the Lord referred to the leaven of the Sadducees and Pharisees, He didn't talk about the good teachings that that, that, that they had. He referred to the improper teachings, the hypocrisy of what they were doing. And He used the word leaven to refer to that. It thus would appear that the concept of leaven came to represent and came to symbolize those impurities, those contaminants, those things that were apart from the purity of what was the whole. And therefore, in light of that being purged, it was a reminder to the children of Israel, and in a symbolic way to us as well, that leaven was a reminder of those things that ought to be removed, that which was not pleasing, not consistent with the teaching of God. Look over to 1 Corinthians 5. Notice here how the concept is presented. Verse number 7. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. Here was a man who was living in adultery. Perhaps I should say fornication. And as he was doing this, the church had not withdrawn fellowship from him as they ought to have done. And yet in that context... Paul reminded him, look, you've got to do this because a little leaven, a bad thing, will leaven the whole lump. You've got to purge out that old leaven. And so one more time, leaven was used to bring before us the idea of what's not consistent with the Word of God, what is not in harmony with it, what needs to be purged or removed. And it was in that connection, apparently, that Old Testament reminder set before them the issue that you've got to get rid of, whatever isn't consistent with the teaching of God. And every year, as they'd sweep the house and eliminate the leaven, it ought to have been a constant reminder, we have got to serve God always, doing what He commands and never substituting anything else. I might suggest, in light of all those things, I was only able to find one positive reference to leaven in all the Bible. And I might suggest even that one reference has nothing to do with a lesson we've learned already. It was with a different attribute of leaven. You and I know what yeast will do, leaven. You put it in a lump of bread, it'll make it rise. It was in that connection that it was described in Matthew 13 in terms of a parable about the nature of verse number 33 where only the element of growth or enlargement attached to the leaven was therein highlighted. And that would, of course, speak about the nature of once the kingdom was established, the great church of our Lord, it was going to explode and, of course, go all over the world as individuals preached the gospel and people obeyed it. But it was that attribute of growth highlighted, certainly not that unhappy leaven and the idea about what God doesn't approve. That's three questions tonight. One more to go. As we look at the fourth question... That question reads as follows. The Bible clearly teaches that Christians are to be different than those in the world. In Titus 2 verse 14 we read that Christians are to be a peculiar people. In Romans 12 verse 1 we read that Christians should present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. My question is, is it sinful for a Christian to have tattoos, body piercings, And is it wrong to pierce the ears of a little baby girl? Isn't that a good question? What about tattoos and body piercings? Even to the point of earrings, even as one might think about a little baby girl. So sometimes small children like that way have their ears pierced. Let me suggest as we at least briefly consider some of these things there must be one statement I need to make first. As you and I discuss a topic like this one, it is quite common to turn to either Leviticus 19 or Deuteronomy 17 and following and to read various verses that are found there. In fact, if you'd like to go ahead and notice quickly Leviticus 19.27, it does talk about making marks in the skin. Clearly that would remind you and me about tattooing. After I read it, though, I would like to urge a very, very strong warning. Leviticus 19, verse 27, ye shall, I'm sorry, verse 28, ye shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Clearly, some might turn to that and say, well, there it is. We are not to make any marks on our skin, and that would certainly include tattooing. But please, may you and I be consistent. Notice that was in the Old Testament, and the children of Israel were specifically told this. Case in point, look at some of the other things in that chapter. Are you and I as dutiful to consider doing them? I would only call to your attention... Verse number 27, very previous verse. Ye shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shalt thou mar the corners of thy beard. Gentlemen, do we ever shave our beards? If we're going to preach that verse 28 is needful and you can't tattoo, then do I ever get haircuts? Do I ever shave my beard? My point is we've got to be consistent. The fact is, all of that in the Old Testament was for those children of Israel. And that law is not the law beneath which we live today. That law was nailed to the cross. Now, if that's found in the New Testament, we certainly need to know it. But the fact is, there is no New Testament verse that directly reads in the same way that one does. Therefore, we mustn't turn to that and say, that outlaw's tattooing we need to be careful and use some New Testament passages at best. On this slide, I'd like to suggest this to you. There are many times when you and I must utilize the principles of the Word of God. In fact, the Bible nowhere says, Thou shalt not inject heroin in thy body. But we know that's wrong based on any number of principles, including Revelation 20, Revelation 21, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, as well as so many others. But there are principles that lead to that activity being wrong. We need to appreciate that there are a number of characteristics of tattooing for which there are principles in the Bible that speak volumes about how that's inappropriate and how that it is not something that the God of heaven would endorse or, in fact, encourage you and I to consider For instance, what about the principle of influence? There are so many occurrences and occasions in which individuals who now have a tattoo, they chose to get one and clearly you can't get rid of it. It's now with you basically for the rest of your life. And it has a connotation attached to it. You may find it hard to ever get a job, at least the kind of job you'd want, because those who see that portray it, or look upon it in a certain light. It carries a certain significance. And the question has to be, will this help me serve God? Can I lead people to Jesus with this? Can I do be a better influence for good with this? I have never known of anybody say the answer to be yes. In fact, if you read books and articles by those who have tattoos and now regret sorely they ever got them. They have often wished they never had. It has led them down pathways of influence that have not been good, and they have found it challenging to interact with others in a noble way that they now wish they could do. But alas, they've made that decision, and it cannot be undone. In addition to Matthew 5, verses 13 and following, There Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. You are the salt of the earth. Is this going to help me be any of that? Will this tattoo help me do any of that? Not only that. What about the principle of modesty? This one is easy to overlook, I confess. More often than not, when you and I consider modesty, we just... Think. Make sure you got enough clothes on. The words that are used in the New Testament are stronger than that. They include it to be sure, but they include more than that. In First Timothy chapter two, verse number nine, the following statements are found. First Timothy two, verse number nine. In like manner, also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. These individuals were specifically told, you should not and must not adorn yourself in any ostentatious way that attracts attention unduly to yourself. It could include your clothing. It could include the jewelry you wear. It could include the way you fix your hair. Anything that draws undue attention, question. If you slap tattoos all over you, will that draw undue attention? The answer speaks for itself. When you and I watch these professional athletes, if we choose to do that, they're covered with these things. Is that not drawing attention in some ways to these issues that are such that you see nothing else but these things? That kind of thing, God prohibited I would suggest that alone says tattoos are not good ideas. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3, look at another verse. 1 Peter chapter 3, that also has much to say, at least about the principle involved here. Who's adorning? This is verse 3. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting of the hair and of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and gentle spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Peter drew a rather strong line of contrast. On the one hand are those things that one might turn to for the adorning of what one sees. Now we have to wear clothes, we understand that. And women may choose to wear appropriate jewelry. We understand that. Nothing wrong with that. And they may choose to fix their hair appropriately. Nothing wrong with that. But when you're doing something, according to verse number 3 and 4, that draws especial attention to these other attributes that would seem to be against what Peter highlights. Perhaps one final verse then would take us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in verse number 20 of that chapter, Paul closes that chapter with these words. Verse number 20, 1 Corinthians 6. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Both the spirit and the body belong to God, all of it. And thus one should ask, certainly, will there be any sense in which this tattoo I can find? A passage in which God will give me the approval. Remember, Bible silence isn't enough. We can never argue anything based on the fact, well, He doesn't say not to. Based on these verses we've said tonight, I think He does say not to. And therefore, let's close that slide and our fourth consideration, the fourth question of the night. Our study of these questions has hopefully been an encouraging thing to us to allow God to speak to us in all these ways about how we should live our life day by day. Tonight, we understand how that God has given us His Word and we're so thankful for it. We love the Word of God. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 97. This evening, as we've looked at these questions... May we use them to prompt our thinking along this line. Am I a faithful Christian? Am I living my life each day to the best of my capability in faithful service to the Lord who died for me? If you can say yes to that, please keep living that way all the way while breath is still within your lungs. If though that answer is not yes, it could be you've never become a Christian Why don't you submissively bow before the great Maker, the One who made you? Respect His Word. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. And if we could help you in that way, it would be our privilege. If you have become a Christian, though, and maybe you've known the sweetness of living faithfully, but as of tonight, you know the answer is not so. Your life manifests things which it ought not. And it's clear to perhaps others that you're serving the devil instead of Jesus Christ. We want you to know the Lord loves you. And His statement of love never ceases to be powerful. If we could make respectful prayer on your behalf in in acknowledgement of your repentance and confession, we'd love to do that. We would urge you to come and now, while together we stand and while we sing.